Hey, it is so good to be back um, with you this morning. We just had camp, as you've heard about several times. We sang some camp songs and things like that. And we had a really fantastic week this week up there at camp. And thank you for praying for us if you were uh, joining us in, in prayer over the camp. It was really wonderful, wonderful week in, in so many ways. Um, I got to do my role once again as camp dad, which meant I was just there for, I was the utility guy. I'm really in a support role for, for camp. Pam is kind of the leader of all that stuff, and I just help out however needed. So that involved all kinds of carrying things. That's kind of what, you know, dads carry things a lot, it seems like. That's what we do. Uh, and so anyway, but it also involved me telling camp dad jokes, which, what's that? You want to hear some dad jokes from camp dad? Okay, I guess so. Um, well, I was going to tell you a time travel joke, but you didn't like it. The ki- none of the kids got that. None of the kids got that. You should pat yourselves on the back. That was a really well done, well done. Uh, swimming with sharks is expensive. It cost me an arm and a leg. Okay, one more. A guy walks into a bar and he was disqualified from the limbo contest. That was like waves throughout the room, like, yeah. Well done, everybody. Okay, we are in, let's talk about the Bible now after some, some really bad jokes, but thank you for your polite laughter. Uh, we're in Acts chapter 16 today. Craig opened the service time talking about this, this story of Paul and Silas singing after, after a brutal, their brutal treatment at the hand of the authorities in, in the church at Philippi, and we'll, we'll tell that story as we get into it today, but uh, previously on Acts to the Ends of the Earth, um, we have been talking about just this, the story of the early church. The book of Acts is all about our history. This is about where we came from. This is about how all of this began. The fact that we gather together today as we are as Christians in, in churches and just kind of the way that the missionary, the word of Jesus spread throughout the world is an incredible and beautiful thing. And this is our story. This is where it all began. So now we are um, at Acts chapter 16, and as we pick up our, the story of the spread of the early church, we said in the beginning that the title of the series, Acts to the Ends of the Earth, was Jesus' parting message to them. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That they would, it would continue to ripple out into all of the known world at this time. And and then eventually, of course, go to all of the world as, it, as it's continued to, to mobilize throughout our history as a, as a movement and as Christians. Today, where we jump in, we are at the second missionary journey. Last week, we talked about this special meeting called the Jerusalem Council and kind of this key pivotal moment where the church was determining, are, are we going to be kind of a subset of the Jewish faith where part of coming to Christ is you also need to come to Moses, so to speak. You need to not only come to the, the Mount Calvary, but also to Mount Sinai and begin to follow the law and all of these things. And what does it look like to be a Gentile Christian? Is that even possible? And the church prayed and, and sought the Holy Spirit and, and determined together that what God was calling them to do was to invite everybody to come to faith. And you didn't have to change your identity to come to faith. You just Everyone needed to come the same way. You needed to come by grace through faith. And it was this incredible moment where they, they determined that together through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the Spirit's guidance, that this is what it was going to be. And then a letter was written to send to the churches. 
And Paul and Barnabas were, were going to travel to the churches that they'd visited before with this news about the letter, but also to encourage them. And then the end of Acts chapter 15, it tells us this story about the sharp disagreement that arose between Barnabas and Paul. And we didn't cover that in last week's message, but they split up into two different groups. And Paul goes on what he thinks will be a visit to the churches where, where they've been before. And he leaves on this second missionary journey. Acts chapter 16, we'll pick it up in verse 6, and we'll see how God guides them and how God takes them on this journey. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go in Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, or Troas, and as a a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I find it really interesting with this passage that we just read, those few verses, just how supernatural the guidance was that God was giving Paul and his companions on this missionary journey. That that God somehow spoke to them. They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit in verse 6 to speak the word in Asia. I don't know what, that's just a verse there, but we don't know exactly what that involved. Like how was they, how were they forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia? And they just kept traveling and traveling. God, do you want us to go here? No, we, we don't know. We're told that Silas was a prophet. So maybe God was speaking through Silas, maybe some other supernatural means. But they eventually, they kept attempting to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by, they went down to, to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. This vision of a person from Macedonia saying, help us. Now, up to this time, they'd been mostly in Turkey, uh, the island of Cyprus as well. And now they begin, they get a call from Europe, from modern-day Greece. And it's a supernatural one. Come over to Macedonia and help us. This vision he sees. Now, I don't know if you've ever had guidance from God in a way that, was, that felt supernatural in some way, that God was speaking to you through unique means. Maybe someone came up to you and said, I don't know what this means, but I really feel like God wants me to tell you this. And they tell you something. Or maybe you had a dream that seemed spiritually significant. You have weird dreams, you know, that just seem like nothing. That was like, what was that? That was weird. But then other dreams where you're like, I wonder if God... I wonder if God's trying to tell me something. Some of you can identify with, with what I'm talking about. And when those things happen, I try to pay attention to those, those moments. Is there something here for me, God? Are you trying to communicate something to me? Are you trying to tell me something? There's some decision, decision I'm facing, and God is speaking to us in, in some way. John Stott, who is a great English preacher, talks about this moment in the days of the early church and in Paul's life about decision-making and just kind of wisdom and guidance on making decisions in general. And he says, sometimes God gives us negative, like it's a, God's guidance is a negative. Don't do this. Sometimes God's guidance is a positive. Do this. Sometimes it's circumstantial. You're going a certain direction and a door closes. So metaphorically, right? I'm, I was planning on doing this and then the opportunity went away. Or there's a door over here that just opens and all of a sudden you're, you're going this direction, but this, there's this opportunity over here. Maybe God's calling me to do that. God's guidance is also often very rational. We just really think about our situation and try to 
with the wisdom that God has given us, try to make decisions and discern certain things. It can be very personal where we just feel like God has laid something on our heart and maybe it's through one of these supernatural means that we're talking about. And, but I think it's also corporate. In other words, it's a together kind of decision. And in, in fact, verse 10 says, And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. There's this word concluding, and in the original Greek, it's this word symbiazo, which involves gathering information, being convinced of something. It literally means to bring together different things, to put something together from a variety of information sources. So we think that Paul and his companions, and it's also interesting here that the word us is used, implying that Luke, the author of Acts, is is a part of this traveling party now. And he includes himself and says us and we for the next few verses as well. But, but that's how decisions happen oftentimes. When we're following Jesus and we're trying to honor him, we're giving our whole life to him, and we're trying to honor him with our decisions, he often uses all of these, these different methods, and together we discern using Scripture as our ultimate source of information what God is calling us to do. In this moment, the gospel comes to Europe, as I mentioned, and that's significant because Christianity would be, the, the center of Christianity would be Europe for you know, more than 1,500 years. And this is the moment where the gospel, the good news of Jesus, first enters Europe. So we'll pick it up now in verse 11, um, and we'll meet some of the characters that will make up this church at this town called Philippi. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord... Come to my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. So we'll stop there because we're introduced to several important ideas that we should talk about. So one is this the city where they are, the city of Philippi. It was a leading city, we're told, in the district of Macedonia. It was a Roman colony. This would have been very significant to, to be a Roman colony for Roman citizens at this time. This would have been a little outpost of Rome in what is now modern-day Greece. And as a Roman colony, that came with certain privileges, that came with a certain amount of pride that they would have had. In fact, later when Paul's writing to the church at Philippi, he makes a big deal about citizenship and us being citizens of God's family, kind of playing on this idea that they would have been very proud of the fact that they were mostly Roman citizens. Archaeological digs on the ancient city of Philippi have found a lot of Latin signs, like I think it was more than half of the signs were written in Latin, implying that a lot of these people were from Italy, they were Roman, Roman citizens, and this would have been a point of pride for them and something significant for them. Paul's strategy we've covered in previous weeks that every time he'd go to a new place, he'd always try to find the synagogue. He would always start at the synagogue where the Jewish people would gather for worship, and he would look for an opportunity to share the gospel to the Jewish people first. The Messiah that you've been waiting for is here. His name is Jesus. We have witnessed his incredible work and the story of Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection, and we're here to tell you this amazing 
story that you've been waiting for for generations. This has come true, and his name is Jesus. But because there was no synagogue in Philippi, which implies there was not a large Jewish population, there needed to be 10 adult male Jewish people to form like a quorum for a synagogue, and there, there wasn't that. So there wasn't a synagogue in there, so they went to where they thought the people would go if there wasn't a synagogue. Maybe there'd be a place of prayer somewhere. And they find a woman named Lydia. And we're told here that she is from the city of Thyatira. I think it's something like 400 miles away. She, she, had, she was an immigrant, so to speak, in, in this part of the country. I think she came from Turkey. Now she's in Greece. And she's a seller of purple goods and a worshiper of God. Now, we take this for granted. There's so many things we take for granted in the modern world. But the fact that she, spe- she specialized in purple fabric. Like, what? Like, you don't do that. That's, that's not an industry now, right? But the fact that you could have different color clothing, that you could take a garment and, like, dye it to be a certain color, that was, like, that was tough to do back then. And purple in particular was a dye that was really hard to make. It was expensive to make. So only the very wealthy would have had purple clothing. I see wealthy people in here, maybe. But now, of course, we take these things for granted. But she, so this implies that she was probably wealthy herself. We're told that the church that starts in Philippi meets in her home. We're told that her home becomes the base of operations for Paul and Silas's mission work there. So the fact that she had um, a household and all of this like, tells you something about her, her place in society. She was someone who was successful, but she was searching for something. And Scripture tells us that she was a worshiper of God. Like she, she was drawn to the God of the Bible. She was drawn to God the Father. And Paul and Silas bring to her the message of Jesus. And Scripture says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And then she was baptized. She came to faith in Jesus and was, as a symbol of that, was baptized. The fact that the Bible says the Lord opened her heart is is significant, I think, for us to talk about. There's a lot of theological conversation about how salvation works. Like, what, what what does it look like? Is it just someone chooses God or is God involved in this in some way? And there's theologians that have put together something called the golden chain where God first calls people to himself and then God opens our heart and there's conversion and regeneration, all all these different theological concepts for it. And we don't need to get into all that necessarily as a part of this discussion, but I think the fact that it says the Lord opened her heart implies that God plays a very, very important role in bringing people to faith in Jesus. And that implies that if there are people in your life that you want to see meet Jesus, you need to be praying for them. You need to be asking God to do that. God, would you open their heart? Would you would you cause people who don't yet know you, who need you, to come to faith in you? And God, you draw people to you. We're told the Holy Spirit does this. The critical role of what the Holy Spirit does is drawing people to God. And then I wonder about you, too. Like, when you think about this moment in your life, that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, could you point to a moment like that in your life where the Lord opened your heart and all of a sudden you realize for the first time the good news of Jesus and you know, I don't know when that was for you or what that was like for you, but that's a, that's a powerful moment when God opens someone's heart and they become receptive to the message of Jesus. So this happens for, for Lydia, and, and she becomes the first follower of Christ from Philippi, along with her household. 
So now there's a little church developing. This would have been the servants. This would have been any family members that she had with her. Now let's continue uh, the story of the church at Philippi in verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a, had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. I, this passage has always been interesting to me, this idea that this demon-possessed young woman, this, this a slave girl, like how, how her life must have been very difficult but then just this moment where she's following Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And I kind of thought like, hey, that's, that's okay. Like she's saying true things, right? These men are servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming you the way of salvation. Like they got like this walking megaphone behind them telling everybody, you know, just following them around, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now I want to try something here. Um, because it says Paul was greatly annoyed. And I, I just thought, that's, that's interesting. So here we go. Let's, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. These men are... What if I did that for the rest of the sermon? Wouldn't that be annoying? Um, some of you have toddlers... Um, and they can be repetitive, you know, I don't know if you've noticed that, um, for different reasons than this, this girl, obviously, but uh, for many days, the scripture says, she followed them around, she, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. I think Paul was pretty patient for a while, that he put up with that for many days, but then it says he turned and he he said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. We see the power of the name of Jesus over even spiritual darkness like this, and it comes out of her, and her life is changed. Can you imagine the torment that she must have gone through, not only being a slave, but having this spiritual oppression and possession in her case of this dark force that, like, she's just a commodity, and her life is broken and, and painful and the torment that she would have been going through. And, and Paul, in the, with the words of the name of Jesus, she is released from this. We, I think there's also maybe a principle here about truth being declared in the wrong way. Where we, we might say something really truthful. These are servants of the Most High God, you know, who declare the way of salvation. 
Um, that was true, but it was coming from this satanic thing, and it was being declared in kind of this, this wrong way. And so Paul, you know, puts up with it for a while, but then, man, he, with this word, delivers her from this. Now, what Paul did in this moment was good. Like, there's no question that what he did was good, like what God did through him. He did a good thing, and the result of the good thing he was doing was an incredibly brutal and violent attack. It says that the owners saw that their hope of gain was gone. These people who had been taking advantage of this, this poor young woman now see like, oh man, like she doesn't do what she used to do or she would somehow through spiritual knowledge in this dark way know about something, someone's life and be able to tell them things about their life. And now we, we cannot make any money off of her anymore. That's over. And so in, out of their anger at their loss of income, it says they dragged them before the magistrates into the marketplace in this very public place. And the, the accusation begins, right? This is, these men are Jews. That, that's pretty sinister. Like why, that's part of what they're being accused of. There's some kind of anti-Semitic thing, but also they are advocating customs. They're disturbing our city and they're advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. That's not technically true. That's a false accusation at some level. But then there's this just miscarriage of justice. The people who are responsible for that, that magistrates are there to make sure the right thing is done. They're there to make sure that the justice is carried out. That if something unjust is happening, they're the ones who will say, no, we're going to make sure we're responsible for upholding the rule of law. We're going to make sure that justice is carried out. And, and instead, brutality breaks out. Paul and Silas are humiliated. They're stripped of their clothing. They're attacked by the crowd. The magistrates, yeah, tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. This was a brutal, brutal attack. They had been inflicted with many blows upon them. They threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. So now, rather than getting their wounds taken care of, they are locked up in stocks, Scripture tells us. So if you can picture that, I think we've seen that medieval, cart, you know, the image of someone from medieval time in stocks, probably their feet, yeah, they're fastening their feet in the stocks, right? These two pieces of wood on top of each other with a lock, holes big enough for your feet to go through. You were not going to get a restful night's sleep. You were there. You were not going to escape. This is their situation. But let's see how Paul and Silas respond to this miscarriage of justice. Verses 25 to 40. After midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, or cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. 
Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejected or rejoiced, excuse me, along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent, to, sent the police saying, let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go, therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This little note at the end about what happened with the magistrates and them being Roman citizens and beaten unfairly without a trial and all that. And as a Roman citizen, you had certain rights, and one of them was to not be treated the way that Paul and Silas were. And Paul and Silas, it likely would have made life difficult for the early Christian community if they would have done what the magistrates wanted them to do, which is just like sneak out of town after being publicly shamed. They're associated with the message of Jesus. They're, they're in the marketplace, the most you know, populated place in town. They're beaten within an inch of their lives. They're, they're bloody and then they're locked up and humiliated. That if that wouldn't have been set right in some way, that the magistrates wouldn't have come and accompanied them out of town and shown that they didn't, do not approve of what happened to them, that could have made life very difficult for the early church in Philippi. And so Paul you know, mentions this fact that he's a Roman citizen and things are made right, so to speak, but they're still, I'm sure, beaten and recovering from their wounds for a while. But there's this, this moment here that we've been talking about where Craig opened the service talking about it, this that Paul and Silas in jail, locked up, miscarriage of justice, treated so unfairly and so evil, in such an evil fashion, what would you do in that situation? I mean, like, we're told that the jailer later has to, like, clean their wounds because they have untreated wounds where the skin was broken because of this horrible, violent beating they received with these rods. And in that situation, the question would be easy to ask, will I trust God in these kind of moments also? Will I trust, when, when life seems so broken, so difficult, so unfair, everything's horrible, will you trust God in those kind of moments as well? And what they do in that moment is they sing and they pray. And Scripture tells us the jail, the, the other prisoners were watching all this. They were listening to them. They were witnessing this, this witness of Paul and Silas. This jailer was probably a retired Roman soldier. These kind of jobs, like being the city jailer, would have been given most often to retired soldiers. And he, I, I, I know people, you know, military people, military kind of background. I imagine that he was probably a no-nonsense kind of character, that he was someone that, you know, had spent his life in the Roman military, which would have said something about him being a, maybe a person of discipline, person that, you know, I don't know, some assumptions you can make maybe about someone like that. But he was not a very kind person. He certainly didn't care for their wounds before he threw them in the inner prison, the most secure part of the prison. Probably would have been very dark in there, a brutal situation. But what he hears maybe as he's drifting off to sleep that night after this moment is singing. And God responds in a dramatic way. An earthquake happens so much that all the prisoners are set free from their bonds. Even the bonds themselves break off. And 
this is a powerful moment. Now, every time I've heard this story before, I always think about this, like, what, what was it that motivated Paul and Silas to sing? In a moment like this, where did the songs come from? And I always thought, like, I always thought, well, they just were really joyful. Like, they, in that moment, what they felt was joy, and so they couldn't help but just sing and praise God. I don't know where I got that idea necessarily from, but that is what is, I've always thought that about this passage, that they were just full of joy in this moment and they're singing and even though they're bloody and bruised and they're locked up in, in this uncomfortable position that would make it very hard to sleep, certainly to sleep on your back that's been beaten, they must have just been still joyful. The joy of the Lord filled them up and that's how they were singing. I don't know that the scripture says that explicitly, that that's why they were singing, in fact, I wonder if they were singing and they were praying to find the joy they needed. I wonder if it went the other way, that they were deeply discouraged and not feeling particularly joyful in that moment. But it was then that they needed the songs the most. And maybe in that moment of singing, in that moment of praying, they, they were finding the encouragement they needed to make it through that brutal situation. You know music is powerful. You know singing is powerful. Right? We, we all have, music will transport you. You, you will be, you, you might hear a song, you're walking through the mall and you hear the Muzak and there's a song that comes on and all of a sudden it's like 1994 and you're remembering like how you felt when you heard this song and they played this at the homecoming dance or, or whatever. Or, you know, you, I, I think you can all identify it to some degree with what I'm talking about. Where, or music will change your mood. You know, um, I've discovered like a parent hack for, for you if you, this is, something that my kids love, when it's time to clean, when the house has gotten to that particular, like it just tipped over into like, our house is a disaster. Like we've got to do something to clean this place up. And you know your kids, they don't tend to volunteer for that. Yeah, I'd love to, mom and dad. Yeah, let me help you clean up the house. That, that's not how those conversations tend to go, at least in my house. But what we do is we turn on fun music on the Bluetooth speaker and we have a little cleanup party. And it, it is like, it, it's fun. It transforms the moments of those kind of mundane things into fun times <laughs> for the most part. So try that. It might, might work for you, those with young kids. Um, but music has a power, right? Music has this ability to, to, to affect our mood. If you're feeling like discouraged and you hear a song that's always been uplifting to you, and certainly when it comes to Christian worship, music is so powerful. It transports us. It can affect our mood. It communicates truth. We hear the truths on the voices of other people around us, and it, it makes its way into our heart in unique ways. And as I was preparing the message, I came across this uh, commentary by Ajit Fernando, who's a Sri Lankan pastor who wrote about the book of Acts. And he says this, The emotions of Paul and Silas presumably were greatly affected by the humiliation, injustice, and pain they experienced. Later, Paul presented this experience as a part of his qualifications for being a servant of Christ in 2 Corinthians 11.23. But when they prayed and sang in the prison, they were resorting to a time-tested method of responding to suffering. Numerous psalms have been written out of the depths of despair. Psalm 27, Psalm 42, Psalm 43. Singing helps us focus on the glorious eternal realities that may be clouded by the gloomy temporary realities. It helps us especially because when we cannot produce words of our own, we can use words of others. Usually in times of distress, our minds hold on to eternal realities as articles of faith, but that does not necessarily influence our feelings. 
our hearts remain engulfed by the problems. Songs help truth travel down to the heart. And the use of music, the language of the heart, helps speed that process. The objective truths we get from biblical songs challenge our subjective feelings. Our theology addresses our experience. Moreover, the permanent triumphs over the temporary, and we are able to praise God from the heart. One of the most powerful tools we have as followers of Christ is song. We, we get to, I, I've definitely had the experience many times where I've come into church and I'm even going to preach the message and I'm not feeling ready or I'm feeling discouraged by something. And as we worship as a church, I, I, my heart is prepared. My heart is changed. I, the burden is lifted. The weight I carry falls off. This side note, also an important reason why the music you listen to, like you need to be thoughtful about the music you listen to as a follower of Christ. That, that we can let the, the messages go to our hearts in unique ways when we listen to music. And so if you're listening to music, it, the only music you ever listen to is music that's like promoting a, like a view that's opposed to Christ. Like that's going to impact you. That will have an impact on you. It's not some neutral thing, I don't believe. This, this moment here um, where Paul and Silas are all standing there, like if you were in that situation where the chains fell off, you're like, hey, God released us from prison. It's we can leave now. Like, let's all go. Um, they knew what would have happened to the jailer if they would have done that. If they would have in that moment taken the opportunity to escape, the, that would have cost the jailer his life. And the jailer was, was willing to take his own life knowing that, that what would happen to him like he would be publicly shamed and embarrassed, and so he was better off taking his own life in that situation than allowing this, this process that would happen. If you let the, the prisoners go free, then it's going to be at the cost of your life. That was the rule. People knew that. And so they viewed their release not as, a, as an opportunity to escape, but as a different kind of opportunity, which is to share the good news of Jesus. I don't think they knew how the jailer would respond necessarily, but they knew that they needed to stay put, and they knew that the jailer would be killed if they left. The jailer unlikely, I don't think the jailer was likely to be someone like, like Lydia at the beginning. Lydia is this God worship, she's someone who worships God, she's seeking spiritually, and so Paul just comes along and, and what she's been seeking for she finds in that moment. Like, this is what I've been looking for, I've been a spiritual person for a long time, and now I'm hearing about this Jesus who meets the needs that I, that I obviously have. I don't think the jailer was like that. I don't think the jailer was, that, was tuned into the spiritual in that way. I think he was probably like a blue collar kind of person that just, you know, focused on whatever was going on that day and maybe every now and then he thought big thoughts about what's this life all about. I, I don't know that for sure, but my speculation is that I don't think he was like Lydia in that way. He did not seem to be a spiritual seeker. But even though he was not seeking God, God was seeking him. And God went to extraordinary means to bring the gospel into his house. There's a writer named uh, Paul, or he's a missions expert named Paul Borthwick, and he talks about how God's mission sometimes uses an unorthodox means to rescue and help people and, and bring the message of Jesus to them. Uh, says, a young man named Peter reminded me of a modern-day Philip. I stood into a McDonald's, I stopped into a McDonald's in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and noticed Peter working the counter. I recognized him from, a, from our young adult ministry at church, and I knew he had just graduated from Harvard University with a master's degree. Now he's working at behind the counter McDonald's. I greeted him, 
and managed to get him to break free for coffee. What are you doing here, I asked, knowing that the Harvard master's degree students don't usually aspire to work the counter at McDonald's. Well, he explained, I graduated in May, but I went four months without finding a job. So I said to myself, I need some income to pay bills, so this is where I've ended up, at least for now. Sorry to hear that. It must be hard, I replied, but Peter cut me off. No, don't be sorry. God, God has me here. This place is giving me awesome opportunities to share my faith. I'm on a shift that includes a Buddhist guy from Sri Lanka, a Muslim person from Lebanon, a Hindu lady from India, and a fellow Christian from El Salvador. It's awesome. I get to be a global missionary to my coworkers while asking, would you like fries with that? Um, this idea, I think, of, of being sent to wherever you are is a powerful idea. And that the fact that God is so kind and so loving that he would send Paul and Silas through what they went through to get to this jailer, to give the message of the gospel to this jailer, is profound. That, that, and I think Paul and Silas were were willing participants. It wasn't like they were like, oh, I, I imagine the relief actually in that moment. Like, oh, that's why we went through this. Because this guy needed to hear the gospel. And now they're there and they're sharing the message of Jesus to this group of people in this household. And it says that they were baptized. But his question, he says, he comes in he, with the light. He's like, you guys are all here still? Like I went, the, the, the panic he must have felt to wake up during the earthquake, to realize all the prisoners are set free, the fear in that moment, and then the relief to see that they're all still here. He shines the lantern around the room and no one left. He's left in the situation where he says, he says, what must I do to be saved? And I think what this man needed was he needed to be, he needed to, be to see the gospel demonstrated he needed to see people like Paul and Silas who would go through this unjust treatment and face it with, with courage. And when they had the opportunity to take just their own priority and to leave them behind at the, at the risk of his life, to forego that for the sake of saving his life, they saw, he saw the gospel, the message of Jesus displayed in these moments. And his question is like, I've got to do something in response to this. What must I do to be saved? And Paul says what the message of the gospel is over and over again is that, you know, you just believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and everyone with you. That's how you come to faith in Jesus. Believe. It's not what you do. I guess if you want to call believing doing something. But it's, you don't do anything other than putting your faith in Jesus, receiving the grace that he offers. And that's what any of you in this room or any viewing online that have yet to do this, that's what you must do to be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. One quick takeaway from this passage, we see once again, well, two quick takeaways. The, just the diversity of the church, that the, the church at Philippi started with this entrepreneur who was an immigrant to this uh, community and hosted the church in her home. We saw in verse 40 that that's where they met. We see this government worker and maybe even a slave girl. We're not told specifically that she was a part of this early Christian community, but very, very likely could have been. This jailer, and together they form this unique thing called the church, the community in the church of Philippi. And Paul has this deep affection for them. When he writes them a letter years later called Philippians in our Bibles, you see that he just loves these people. He has a strong love and affection for this group of people. 
One other takeaway, because it has to do with an announcement that you heard earlier today, which is I want you to remember the role that baptism played. That believe, they believed and they were baptized. The jailer was baptized that night. Like midnight, they're praying, they're singing, an earthquake happens. They don't even wait till morning. They baptize him after he comes to faith in Jesus right then. We see Lydia, she believes and she's baptized. They're already at the river, might as well, you know, do a baptism service. If you have not been baptized yet, this is, this is part of how we identify with Jesus. We're identifying with his death, burial, resurrection. It's a chance to be public with your faith in a way that is unique. It's a chance to identify yourself as a follower of Christ. For a lot of people, the most public profession of faith they will ever make, not, God has not called everyone to stand on stages and, and preach messages about Jesus, but he's called every follower of Christ to stand with their community and to be baptized and to show this transformation, this inward transformation to show it in this outward way. So that's my pitch for baptism, to sign up for that if you haven't, uh, if you were considering it, I hope you will, I hope you'll do it. And I'd love to talk with you if you have any questions about baptism as well. Well, let's pray.